0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, and you're listening to Eighth Layer Insights. Just a quick announcement before we get started. I mentioned last time that I'm collecting listener questions, and at that time, my plan was to include them in today's episode, but I decided to hold off on that for two reasons. Number one is so that we can collect just a few more questions, so check the show notes on how to submit those. And the second reason is because the interview content for today's episode is extremely detailed, timely, and very important. So I ultimately didn't want to do anything to distract from that topic. Which probably has you asking the question, what is that topic? Well, I thought we'd talk about something that has been in the news quite a lot recently. Authentication and password managers. As security professionals, we've decried the password for decades. Multi-factor authentication, or MFA, has started to gain popularity, but it's not without its own issues. Security leaders and tech teams have somehow once again hoped for a silver bullet, only to be disappointed to find out that crafty attackers can easily bypass MFA. We've also been touting the benefits of password managers for quite a while as a way to hold and store and automatically inject all these complex passwords that we humans need to manage, but that nobody can find a good way to do. I mean, after all, in a world where most of us have to manage upwards of 200 passwords in a year, Who can keep up? No human can have great password hygiene across all those accounts, but password managers also face their own problems as illustrated by a recent high profile incident. My guest today is Roger Grimes. He has a multi-decade cybersecurity career and is the author of 13 cybersecurity books, countless articles, and is a highly sought after industry luminary. Oh, and if you know Roger, he also has opinions. And so on today's show, listen in as Roger and I discuss the current state of authentication, MFA, password managers, and more. Welcome to Eighth Layer Insights. This podcast is a multidisciplinary exploration into the complexities of human nature and how those complexities impact everything, from why we think the things that we think, why we do the things that we do, and how we can all make better decisions every day. This is Eighth Layer Insights, Season 3, Episode 10. I'm Perry Carpenter. We'll be right back after this message.
0: So, what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of security, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors at Know Before can tell you, human error is how most organizations get compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out later in the show.
1: As I mentioned in the intro, today's guest is Roger Grimes. And here's a quick disclaimer. Roger and I worked together at Before, and Before is also a sponsor of the show. But the reason that I wanted to bring Roger on is because there's been quite a bit of news recently about the LastPass security incident. And that's naturally caused people to question the validity of password managers. We are weighing the risk of having a keys to the kingdom problem with the reward of having a system that can create, store, and automatically inject complex passwords on a user's behalf. Doing something that we mere mortals are not good at. So all of that was in my mind. And then I saw that Roger published an article that I think captures the moment. And he was also working on a webinar covering the same material, and it was titled, password managers can be hacked lots of ways, and yes, you should still use one. And so when I saw that, I knew that I had to get him on the show so that he could share that perspective while it is fresh in everyone's minds. Oh, and Roger has been studying the intricacies of passwords, password policies, multi-factor authentication systems, and other related authentication issues and technologies for quite a while. And so he brings a depth of wisdom and experience that's super valuable. Okay, enough intro. Let's get to the interview.
2: Hi, I'm Roger Brimes, I'm the data-driven Defense Evangelist for noble Four. Uh, I've been doing computer security for at least 34, 35 years. I uh, earned all the great hair on my head if you ever get to see me in person. I've written 13 books and probably 1,300 magazine articles on cybersecurity. My first book uh, was an ebook on passwords and password hacking for Windows and .NET wow. magazine many years ago. So so long ago that I can't find a copy of it to even <laughs> post to show people. But uh, So I've been talking about not only cybersecurity, but password security for, for
1: decades. That's super cool. So when you think about passwords and the fact that people have been decrying the lonely password for decades now, why haven't we shifted away from passwords to something, quote-unquote, better yet?
2: That is a great question. Let me say, I wrote my first passwords are going away soon, I think in 1990, (laughs) and then again, like in 1993, 1995. I don't write the articles anymore. I think think passwords are going to be with us at least another decade, if not decades, if not forever. And that's because, you know, as bad as they are, they work for very you know, for most of our stuff, I mean, we're not, most of us aren't protecting, protecting nuclear secrets. Uh, you know, if I'm going to log into my cat club or my car club or my literary club, I possibly don't need to have phishing resistant multi-factor authentication. Uh, it works with everything, nothing that replaces it. If you added it up also, all the things that replace it, multi-factor authentication, password list, passkey, if you were to currently add up everything possible that would be not a password to securely authenticate, it probably wouldn't cover two percent of the world's websites and services. Mm. Uh, and you know, every time they keep talking about passwords are going away, it makes me want to invest in a password manager company. But the reason why that th- they're around is that they they kind of work. I mean, I don't know about you, Perry, but I've seen two year olds putting in small passwords on their parents' right. phones to like buy apps, and I've seen. 99-year-old women in nursing homes putting in, uh, you know, passwords, you know, so young and old can use them. They, you know, they work kind of well. You know, I've been using passwords forever, and for the most part, they haven't caused me any problems, but they, they certainly are a big, big problem. And ultimately, one day, if we can get rid of them and go to something like Zero Trust or passwordless or you know whatever it might be if we could go to something that's frictionless which means the end user doesn't have to do anything you imagine you turn on your device and you do what you want to do without being encumbered if we can get there one day that would be a great thing but i think we're decades away from that
1: yeah so part of this as you said is it it kind of works. I think there's another bit in that it's probably just easy and known. It's something super easy to implement in code because if you can write a form, you can, you can ask for a password, which also means that the reverse of that is one of the reasons that we're not getting away from passwords is because it's a little bit unfamiliar and it's a little bit harder to implement from a technical perspective or from a societal expectation perspective? Do you think that that's somewhere near the ballpark?
2: I I think, yeah, I think you're spot on. I think that's a really tremendous observation. As a matter of fact, there have been some really good studies by some top-level universities looking at the usability of different things, tokens, biometrics, that sort of stuff. And it's amazing if you take... Like, there was this great study. I forget whether it was Columbia or Harvard or Princeton. I forget now. It's in my book, Hacking Multi-Factor Authentication. But in this study, they got a bunch of people to volunteer, and they gave them the easiest type of MFA. They don't tell you what it is, but it sounds like a Yuba key where you plug it into the USB port and you touch it. Mm. And out of that, it was either over half, just over half, or just under half, couldn't use it. Wow. That That some people... Thought that the touch thing was a fingerprint reader. Other people plugged it in upside down. Uh, and let me say that's a, even within our own company where we use YubiKeys, uh, the help desk would tell you one of the top calls they get are people saying my my YubiKey login is not working, and they're just plugging it in, <laughs> fit it in wrong, upside <laughs> yeah. down. And uh, not only this, at the end of this, st- what's amazing about this study is that not only did it have a huge error rate for people just trying to implement, follow the instructions, and use it on a day-to-day basis. At the end of the thing, they told the people, okay, your prize for participating in this research project is you get to keep it and use it. And they followed up a month or two later and found that every single person was not using it, which means wow. people innately just don't like to use things. And number two, or different things. And number two, I forget it was like a third of them had actually given it away or put it into like a corporate box where you could share stuff. So that they, they thought it was like a USB key where you could do storage. Oh, Instead, they were giving away their identity that if you plugged in to the laptop, you know, put in their login name, plug into the laptop, touch it, and that person could log in as them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so so there's an intuitiveness issue with that. One is that you've got a form factor where you can reverse plug something in and it's not effective anymore. So that's a form factor issue, specifically with some of the ways that YubiKey Gets uh, created and distributed in low cost ways. Um, another one is there's not a, a societal understanding about what to do with this thing that you've plugged it in. In the same way that maybe we have a better baked in understanding of the way that password works because we've we've grown up with that, but we also have maybe a better baked in way of understanding the way that um, SMS. Uh, second factor authentication works if you want to call it an actual second factor because you just get that and you intuitively and no, I, I plug these numbers into this. Um, even though we might not consider that phishing resistant, it gains traction because it's easier to understand and more familiar in some way. So I I think we're always dealing with these these things about, what does society expect or what does the end user expect whenever they get this thing? How easy it is, is it to use? How much does it conform with prior behavior patterns and, and so on?
2: That's a really good observation, I think. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I do a lot of these talks about passwords and MFA, and I, I haven't heard anybody say that before. But it, I think you're very much right, you know, that it has to do what's kind of baked into the culture today. And, and passwords are baked into the culture. The SMS MFA-based is kind of baked into the culture You know, and and, and maybe that's even part of the problem of going to an alternative is that there's so many different types of alternatives, right? It's not just YubiKeys, it's biometrics, what type of biometrics, what type of device, what type. So once you say, well, okay, I don't want to do passwords, I want to do something else. You have the problem that whatever MFA solution you choose will not work with most of what you log into. But you know, right. like if you, if you, you know, keys are great, but they only work with things that understand keys. And if you go to what's called Fido keys, which could include keys, that's probably one of the most widespread options. Still doesn't work on 2% of the world's websites and services. If you go to Google Key, it only works with Google Browser on things that have been rolled in the Google Browser application. Uh, if you go with Microsoft's, Microsoft authentication only works in the Microsoft <laughs> ecosystem. So what's happened today, is that we now, not only do we all have like a hundred plus passwords, but now I've got to have 20 or 30 different types of multi-factor authentication. Right. And I use the semantic one when I log into my stock account, and I use the key when I go to work, and I use this perimeter ID badge when I go to my parking garage, and I use a SMS off, auth- you know, <laughs> so like it, it's really a commingled mess right now. And part of the other problem of going to a new cultural standard is that it, there isn't, a single standard or a single device mm-hmm. or a single method. And I, I don't know about you, but every time something diversifies like Linux distros, it kind of destroys the ecosystem. It doesn't support right. the ecosystem. and ends up you know, everybody's got their little take on it. And then it ends up causing there not to be a standard. And, you know, it ends up causing implementation issues.
1: Yeah. And I, I think you you really hit on something there when you talk about all the different types of of MFA and even potentially good MFA types that exist out there that are fairly strong and fairly resistant in a lot of ways. So we have a richness of choice, but then a poverty of ecosystem in which some of those choices work. It's I you know, I could... Uh, use this really good system that's strong, but it only works in this one environment. And because it only works in that one environment, unless I'm plugged into that, I'm going to be conditioned to maybe dismiss that. And if I've got an SMS alternative, I'm going to throw away this thing that's stronger because I understand SMS better. And why keep track of this this one thing that only works in this one ecosystem when I'm really dealing with on a yearly basis with 200, 300 different ecosystems because of one-time use cases with uh, things like uh, you know tax systems that I only touch once a year or, or so on. Um, so how do, we, how do we start to solve this? You play a part in a lot of different pivotal discussions on how people are trying to solve this. How do we move this in a more positive direction?
2: I think we're finally getting a few, if we're talking non-passwords, I think with mm-hmm. password, Really, the answer is becoming, if you have to use passwords, it, that you should use a password manager. And there's a lot of debate around that, But and I hope we can get into some of that today. Yeah. But uh, if you talk non-passwords, I do think, you know, the best thing would be that, let me say I don't like government interference, but it would be great <laughs> if some government god, global internet gods, like, you have to use FIDO keys, or you have to use right. pass keys, or you have to, whatever it is, that would be the best thing. And that's never going to happen. But I do think that we are going to have... You're going to see... Pro- there's a new standard out. It's kind of pushed by FIDO, uh, which is Fast, What Fast ID Online uh, Alliance. Uh, it's called Passkey. And Microsoft and Google and lots and lots of people are adopting it. And it's kind of an in-between. You can use your YubiKey device, your biometric device, but you don't have to. It's passwordless. Mm. Uh, I, I, there's a lot of passwordless options out there, but I think that the Passkey probably is going to have one of the faster, stronger adoptions out there, uh, and anybody can participate in it. It's just the problem is you got all these, you know, tons of websites that aren't going to participate. But I do think you're at least going to, I think you're eventually going to come down to kind of like the FIDO option, the passkey option, uh, and then we're going to see different biometric options, but I, I think we will see some Consolidation in the biometric industry and the password industry, and you always have a hundred different flavors. But I think we are going to see, certainly around pass keys and FIDO, they're finally starting to make some some good movement in there. But then the question, you know, comes: What do you do? What do you do with all the passwords you're still going to have?
1: Right. Well, and and when it comes to adoption of one or more of these potentially good options out there when it comes to an MFA way of approaching this, you do have uh, large ecosystems like Amazon and potentially even uh, Microsoft Azure and others that are saying, in order to access these systems, you have to use one of these devices. And I think that is probably the the, the private enterprise version of a government regulation is we have all these right. people who have bought into these. Um, there, there's only a few ecosystems like those that exist out there that are widely used. Uh, AWS, Azure, you've got Google, you've got, you know, maybe a few others that serve specific industries that are out there. But it's those moves by private inter- enterprise that are saying we need to be able to start to address this because of the huge vulnerability surface that exists if we don't start to do something that's at least going to move potentially a part of the population, right? The people that are more techno-savvy that are, that are likely to to need to use those back-end systems. Does, does yeah, that move no, the no. needle at all or, or no? Because that's, that's one segment of the population. It's not the consumer population that's, you know, dwarfs this, uh, this other ecosystem.
2: Yeah. I mean, you definitely have Microsoft and Google and lots of Amazon Salesforce. If you are going to be yeah. a Salesforce customer, you have to use MFA. So you're definitely seeing these larger ecosystems. Say you have to go to MFA. The problem is, is many times it's many different types of MFA. Again, no standard, or you have to use a particular type and Hey, I have to use that type for that thing, but I can't use that same token or, or, or method for another thing. So it, you know, we're. In, I sometimes feel like we're going to end up with a collection of tokens on a keyring. You know, like a really right. big jailer's key keyring that we carry around with us, so we can do everything we want. And um, yeah. And let me say they're all half measures that really are not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is this, again, frictionless thing where we don't really even know we're doing it. Like when when you go to use your credit right. card. It mostly works, but occasionally the credit card company goes, "Is this you buying the large screen TV at Walmart?" You know, or, or we're going to let you know we think your card's been compromised, and they call you out of the blue to tell you that. I think eventually we're going to get to this authentication that you know ties us to our device and to our location, and then looks at our behavior and does what's called the zero trust thing. Yeah, you know, so that's when I look at passwords, like even biometrics. People go, "Oh, biometrics." You know, that's the ultimate solution. It's a horrible authentication solution <laughs> because it's a biometric attribute that can be copied and used by anyone.
1: <laughs> right, you know, right.
2: I've by thing, I'm part of uh, 5 million people that had their fingerprints stolen when there was this uh, Chinese advanced persistent threat attack in 2015. And they stole 5.6 million people's fingerprints. Anybody that applied for a U.S. government security clearance, even if you didn't pass. Yeah. Well, the Chinese have all ten of my fingerprints. How can any system and today our world's becoming hugely remote, trust that it is me logging into the system? People, well, they'll do geofencing. That way, you know, if it's you know, if it's only if it's coming from your house. The problem with that is that VPNs make me appear to be from many different places. Yeah. And I can buy a VPN that puts me in your neighborhood or puts me at least puts me in your city. You know? Uh, it, it, it's it's you know. It's an interesting dilemma, um, and we don't have the ultimate answer. We're really just, I, I think our grandkids will laugh at, you know, it'd be kind of like, uh, to me, I'd liken it to having the television with four channels that you had to get up manually to go change. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's where we are. You know, we're in this world where our, our grandkids are just going to kind of laugh because they're just going to go to their device, go to their car, their clothing will be computerized or something everything. And it will just recognize them and do it. And it will work a lot better than what we have today. And it won't be stolen all the time. But uh, we're just a couple of decades from that being a reality.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember it's been over 15 years, I guess, when I was uh, really deep in identity and access management, um, closer 15 to 20 years. Um, and back then, that's when things like keystroke dynamics and all of that started to get fairly big uh, as far as very passive authentication or continual authentication and assurance-giving mechanisms in certain fraud environments. And I think that that's ultimately when you get to those continuous authentication or frictionless authentication, those are the kind of things you're thinking at. So it's not something you have, something you know, um, something you are like a biometric, but it is a, a persistent behavioral profile that's always looking at the context and the behavior of somebody and the ways that they're doing. On mobile phone, it's you a know, combination of geolocation, um, a, a lot of the the behavioral analysis things like uh, like a uh, gait mapping, you know, the way that somebody walks, the way that somebody moves, because of the gyroscope in the in the device. There's lots and lots of things. There's also a you know a camera and a microphone on that that can do a, some pretty interesting things as well when you use those in creative ways. Um, so I think we're getting there, but the discouraging thing for somebody like or people like us that have been looking at this for a couple of decades is that this technology has existed for a long time and it's been used in limited ways for long periods of time. Um, how, how do we get it to where it's mass adopted and consumerized? Uh, besides
2: dictator, besides global dictatorship.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, I yeah. guess cost has got to be a piece, right? So cost plugability, as far as the, uh, the ways to integrate that into different code libraries. Um, yeah. No. Yeah, man. That's, you
2: know, I think that you hit on it 10 minutes ago when you said, well, we have the different ecosystems like Microsoft and Apple and Google or whatever. And I will say that they seem to be coalescing, uh, again, around the FIDO standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, or So either through the devices or through the pass key. And let me say, I think it's a good thing. FIDO is a, out of all the authentication standards, FIDO is on the upper end of more secure. Anything can be hacked, but FIDO right. is, a, is a good option. Uh, it's stronger than a lot of them, stronger than 80% of the stuff that's out. 80% of multi-factor authentication out there is is almost junk. Uh, um, yeah. And that's the sad thing is that, you know, unfortunately, when your company or you go with a particular MFA option, the average person has no idea, is it really a good option or a bad option? Well, I've looked at all of it and most of it's fairly bad. And even, even the vendors don't know, like I was surprised, I want to talk that the authenticate conference in seattle this year i did it last year as well it's the one of the largest the phyto conference and it's one of the largest uh, biometric conferences in the world probably in the mm-hmm. top two and i did my standard i i i show a kevin mitnick hacking video where he hacks linkedin's multi-factor authentication you know social engineering attack i've been i've been showing this talk that or kevin mitnick's hacking demo around mfa probably for close to five years to at thousands of presentations. So I'm at this Authenticate conference. I'm talking to MFA people and MFA, mostly MFA vendors. And when I show them how Kevin hacks it, their (laughs) mouth is open wide. They're just like all the audiences I talk to that are clueless about MFA. And I'm like, this is not a good sign that most of the vendors are clueless. Let me say, yesterday, vendor, I get contacted by someone trying to show me their new, incredible, multi-factor authentication, passwordless option almost every day, if not five right. times a day. And I have to blow them off. And they're mostly junk, and they have not sold them to anybody. But, you know, sometimes they'll wear me down. And this one person who wore me down, they were trying to show me their five-factor way to authenticate someone. And like, it's you can't be man-in-the-middle. You can't be man-in-the-middle, we're FIDO. By the way, if you're FIDO, you can't be man-in-the-middle, uh, at least by this traditional heaven Nick attack I talked about, which is just where someone sends you a phishing email, Get you to click on a rogue link. It takes you to a fake website, which is a man-in-the-middle website that then takes you to your real website. But it's able to capture and interact with anything you type. And in doing that, they can capture your MFA credentials yeah. or the the access control token that you get when you successfully log on to a site. They capture that and then take over the session. Well, FIDO prevents that. And uh, so I have this vendor telling me we're FIDO enabled, and we've got these five factors and the stuff's man-in-the-middle attacks. And I'm and I keep asking the guy how the, he's like. We use biometrics. I was like, biometrics is not inherently stopping man in the middle attacks. How does it can do it? How are you doing it? And and, and and in the end, he does. He goes, we're using post quantum encryption. I just laughed. You know, I guess he didn't know that I've written a book on quantum right. cryptography and post quantum encryption. I was like, I was like, quantum encryption has nothing inherently in it that stops man in the middle attacks. It can be used to stop man in the middle attacks, but just because you're so. After he got through talking and showing me. uh after, and was, I like these guys, I like this company, but in the end, their solution did not stop main-in-the-middle attacks. So they're right. selling it, and, and they're saying, oh, we're Fido. If you're not stopping main-in-the-middle attacks, you're not Fido. So, I mean, I was at the final conference, that, you know, that Affinity had all these vendors that were there saying they're Fido-enabled. Like, this one guy company had a, a solution where you just talk, and the microphone can hear you, you know, and the microphone hears you go, oh, that's Roger's voice, and you're authenticated. I was like, but that can be man in the middle. He's like, how can you do it? You know, I'm like, because it can record your voice and replay it. Uh, And another one said, oh, we use non, you can't, the humans can't hear. We use a frequency that your PC speaker can pick up, but the humans can't. So that's our authentication sequence. Your login is this unperceptible sound. I'm like, it can be man in the middle. He's like, no, no, no. They were saying they're phyto-enabled. I'm like, yeah, if your speaker can hear it, It can record record it
1: it.
2: and be (laughs) replaced. So there is this problem, not only with us not understanding how secure a solution is, but I would probably say 80, 90% of multi factor authentication vendors have not threat modeled their solution and don't understand how easily vulnerable it is. And then on top of that, you have insurance companies go, oh, if you buy MFA, we'll give you an insurance. Buy MFA. But they don't care what type of MFA, they don't care if you buy the 80% that's near garbage. They right. just want you to go, oh, I've got this MFA, and then you're protected. Nope. You know, the sad part is 80%, 90% of MFA uh, is as easy to fish and bypass as a password. And the whole reason we're supposed mm-hmm. to be going to it is that we, passwords get fished so much and stolen so much and bypassed so much. So right. it's really weird that the entire world is making people move to all these biometric and passwordless options, and most of them don't stop the same attacks that the passwords are vulnerable to. It's a, it's a it's a shame.
1: so the the thing that i'm I'm hearing about the the vendor community here is that we have a a quote unquote security vendor community that doesn't necessarily know how to think like an attacker yet and they're not doing adequate threat modeling against the different products that they're bringing to market, but then they're making the grandiose claims of they know enough enough of the the threat landscape to say, man in the middle or a certain type of attack. But then when you really get down to it, they don't understand what a replay attack is. They don't understand a lot of the, the, the cutting edge technologies or, or even fairly ancient analog types of ways of, of dealing with you know doing these things. So what do we need to do about the vendor well, community?
2: You ready for this, Perry? It gets yeah. worse. Most of the top cybersecurity leaders don't understand it. I, over this last year, I went to the largest conferences, Black Hat, RSA, or whatever, yeah. and every day at the major big conferences, industry luminaries, who many of whom I love and trust, said, oh, you should use multi-factor authentication because it stops 99% of mm. hacks. I was like, what? Because the reality is the best MFA only stops maybe 50% of attacks. Most MFA only stops 10, 20% of attacks, but right. you've got people that should know better. You've got people that are leading the country, leading the largest cybersecurity organizations that are telling other cybersecurity professionals, if you use MFA, it stops 99% of attacks. And if you're sharing that message and they're resharing that message, while well, all these companies and people go to MFA, they're shocked when all of a sudden they still get hacked. Yeah. I, I, like I think you're actually putting them at a disadvantage because you're telling them that this you, when you say it stops ninety nine percent of attacks, they're hearing hundred <laughs> percent. And like, <laughs> oh I get this I get this MFA and it stops it. I don't I won't be hacked anymore. I think that's far more dangerous than telling someone, hey, you're using a password and it can be stolen. Like if I'm at least giving you the risk, I yeah. think you're at least trying to be somewhat protective. But when I show people, when I, I, I go around doing these hacking MFA conferences presentations all the time, when I show them how easy their favorite MFA solution could be hacked, their mouth drops open <laughs> because they've been told by the vendors, "Use this and you can't be hacked." Or right. 99% can't be hacked, and it's not true. I think it's like dangerous. It's like telling someone that's new to driving cars, "Hey, as long as you have as long as you, you know, keep one eye on the road." Uh, you know, you can just drive and you're probably going to use a seatbelt. You're probably never going to get an accident. You know, it, it, it it's more. Da- yeah. We're literally intentionally instructing people to do things that that are, are far more risky than they're being
1: told. The equivalent that I'm thinking of is that uh, it does do something. I mean, we're unintentionally giving people a false sense of security when we make statements like ninety nine percent. But at the same time, there there is some perceivable good maybe in that it's it's equivalent to putting a lock on your door. It's going to stop the opportunistic doorknob jigglers that see if there's an, an easy to penetrate barrier. But it's no guarantee against anybody that wants to spend a, a minute or two on that doorknob. Well, not, and not
2: even that anymore. It used to be. That's So it used to be the, the conventional wisdom was, well, if I use any MFA, it's putting down the really broad generic attacks. Mm. And it only becomes a problem when I'm targeted. The problem is in the last couple of years, all the automated attacks, like the biggest, most uh. popular phishing kit is now MFA intercepting. So <clears throat> you don't have to be Kevin Mitnick to perform this hack, it's built into all the tools and all the malware and all the mobile malware. You know, it moved, and let me say this, so so I'll I'll be clear about what MFA does. You should use phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication when you can to protect valuable data and systems. I don't think you need to put it in, use MFA on everything to protect when I'm doing a Google search or something or going logging into my cat club or something, but you should use phishing-resistant MFA when you can and to protect my valuable, valuable data and systems and i think if you you know today i think the best if you were to give me the best most secure mfa the stuff that i like fido and passkeys or and, and there's a bunch of passwordless options i like from different people like beyond trust and things like that they're going to stop at best 50% of the attacks 80 90% of the stuff out there is probably only capable of stopping 10, 20% of the attacks, maybe hmm. 30%. And let me say, that's not, you know, if it stops a third of attacks, that is the reason why you should use multi factor authentication. Right. I can't think of any single defense that stops 30% of attacks, other than, by the way, educational and social engineering. Educational and social engineering stops probably 70 to 90% of attacks. But after that, If you have MFA, it does stop. I'm going to give it, let's say, a third. And the good stuff probably stops 50%, maybe. Yeah. That means you should use it. But the problem is, is people are being told it stops 100% or 99% of attacks. And the stuff they're using maybe only stops 20% of the attacks. So uh, there's that misnomer. But, you know, it still means you should use it. But realize that it only stops some types of attacks.
1: Yeah, and that false sense of security is pretty deadly. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor.
0: And now we return to our sponsor's question about forms of social engineering. Know Before will tell you that where there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need new school security awareness training. See how your security culture stacks up against NoBefore's free phishing test. Get it at nobeforecom test. That's nobeforecom test.
1: Welcome back. We're in the middle of a discussion about authentication, multi-factor authentication, passwords, password managers, and more with Roger Grimes. Let's get back to it. Two things I want to ask real quick before we get to password managers. One is we've used the phrase phishing-resistant MFA quite a bit. Can you give us a really quick breakdown on Specifically, what does that mean? What what should somebody look for if they want a phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication system?
2: Great question. And let me say, everything can be hacked. Everything can be socially engineered. So it's a good question to ask. What does it mean when I say use phishing-resistant MFA? I'm generally talking to, at the very least, it stops man-in-the-middle attacks. So a man-in-the-middle attack, again, is oftentimes when somebody sends you a phishing email that socially engineers you into clicking on a link you think it's going to some site or service that you're using or you're intended to use but it's really going to a hacker's website or service that then connects you to the real service and it's able to take everything you send and send to the real service and then everything the sender the 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 service the server service you're connecting to the website you're connecting to it can send to you, so to both the sender and the receiver, what they're getting appears to be what they would normally expect to see. But the hacker is in the middle, able to intercept what flows between the two. Uh, even if you have TLS, you know HTTPS enabled, uh, they can in- because they can have that en- you know they can have that enabled to their website, and then. If you don't notice that the URL is bad, because Let's Encrypt Mm -hmm. allows anyone to get an SSL or what's called a TLS certificate today, but if the 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 victim doesn't realize that the link is different, while the server side doesn't know that the man in the middle website isn't the customer or isn't the client, so when I say that you have phishing resistant multi factor authentication, I mean at the very least, it stops man in the middle attacks. And one that's important is it's probably Just guessing, there's no real data here, uh, which is bad for a guy that's called a data-driven defense evangelist, but it probably stops half of of phishing attacks. About half of phishing attacks try to get your credentials, and if you have an MFA solution that's not susceptible to man-in-the-middle attacks, then eh, I I can say it stops half of social engineering attacks, and that's a good thing.
1: So then the other question I wanted to get to before password managers is there was a fairly notable breach that was disclosed a while back where one of the methods that was used was MFA prompt fatigue. And I know Kevin uses that as well Is one of the ways that he's gotten into things fairly recently. Talk a little bit about what's the problem there? How does that happen? And then what should people do in order to potentially Mitigate against that.
2: Great question again, and let me say that push-based MFA. So push-based MFA is a type of multi-factor authentication where you get prompted either on your phone or your device to go, "Hey, uh, are you logging in? Yes or no? Do you approve this login? Yes or no?" And it typically gives you some other information. It'll tell you sometimes the service that you're logging you know, into, the service, of the application you're logging into. It will tell you your IP address. It will many times tell you your physical location by city. Sometimes it will tell you what operating system and browser you're using. But the idea is, you know, many times it'd come to your phone, but it could be a phone app. It could be a, uh, you know, a laptop app or something. But there's this app that goes, Hey, is this you logging in? Like when I try to log into Gmail, I'll get prompted, Hey, this is, we're seeing this login. It's coming from this location. It's coming from Tampa, Florida. Should I log you in? Yes or no? And when I first learned about uh, push based MFA, I thought, man, this is a great. Solution because it, it it gives you information that's useful that you know and you're approving right at the time when you're doing it and so in my book hacking multi-factor authentication which I think came out in 2020 uh, I said oh I like push-based MFA but it turns out that a non-minor percentage of people and again I'm making this percentage up but it's it is probably around a third of people uh, this is what we can you know you can design a system and until the humans <laughs> really are interacting with it at scale. You don't know how humans are going to react. What it turns out somewhere around a third of humans will approve a law prompt that they did not initiate, which is amazing. And I, I got called in to consult. Uh, this company had lost uh, it, 25, they had to pay $25 million to ransomware. And their CISO was the one mm. that approved the prompts, even though the prompts said it was coming from Russia and ukraine it kind of switched between the two locations yeah and then the attacker got on and put ransomware and held ransom but they were interviewing the ciso and said you know why did you approve over 80 prompts that were coming from russia and they said listen i was just told that when i got this prompt that i was just supposed to say okay i was like what whoa you know so first of all you got a fairly cybersecurity knowledgeable person i thought is if you know I get it. Uh, you know what happened is IT is trying to switch them from passwords to this push-based MFA, and they're just trying to get people how to use it. And they're like, "Hey, when you get this prompt, just say yes." And either they didn't, they didn't, that either they told the person you should say no when it's not you, or right. or they assumed anyone anyone would know to say no. And then you know and that's what happened. But then this push-based fatigue is where attackers have wired that they can, you know, if there's a push-based login, that they can just do it like 100 times at 2 in the morning, and there's another percentage. So out of that third that will just approve any prompt that sent their way, there's another additional percentage that when you bug them enough at 2 in the morning, well, I don't know what's going on. There must be a computer problem. Let me just see if yes stops all of these messages. (laughs) And so that's push-based fatigue. And also what happens in a lot of these big hacks is the hacker then actually calls the person and Mm. says, Hey, I'm from your company's I T we're trying to apply this patch. I apologize. But if you don't say yes, this stuff's going to keep going all night long. And there, and let me say the companies that have been hacked this way are a who's who of the, of the computer security world, like Cisco, Cisco Talos got hacked that way through an employee being told that I T was calling. So the industry responded with this thing called number matching which is when you go to log into the screen, there's a number on the screen where you're logging in, and then your push-based uh, app will have, either you have to type in the number or they'll give you three numbers to choose among, but so you have to select or type in the right number, and that means that you are in front of the machine, so it's gotta be you involved with that login prompt, or so I thought. And then the sort of thing about, you no, know, the hacker they call to tell you they're from IT will go, hey, this is from IT, we're trying to apply a patch, the number's 23. Like it's not that hard for the hacker to tell you what the number is. So i right. went from being kind of a fan of push based MFA and the number matching with, to I'm convinced now it's all useless and it should not be used by anyone. It is really, really bad MFA. Although, you know, what could, you know, Perry, you know, what could solve it? Telling your employees, by the way, people could spoof, right, you know, being in IT, you know, security awareness training. Like literally, I think a lot of these attacks would just stop or be prevented if you gave them just five minutes of education about here's the types of attacks that yep. would occur. And let me say for every that's my answer to every MFA option. If you can't get to a good option, or even if you have a good option, spend some time educating your employees about the popular types of attacks, how to right. recognize them how to prevent them, stop them, mitigate them, and then how to report them. Like literally, we don't give people passwords without giving them a little education, but somehow we're giving them MFA and going, here, it stops 99% of attacks.
1: Have a good day. Yeah, this this is your force field. You have got this, everything's good. You know, the the thing that I was always afraid of with push-based MFA is – How many of us get notifications all the time and we just hit yes or we don't even know what we hit? We've just swiped the notification out of the way, anything to get it off my screen, because it comes up at the least convenient time. I'm trying to check an email or I've got a phone call coming in. The last thing I want to do is deal with this notification.
2: No, you're exactly right. You know, I've read uh, I'm looking around right now. You can't see me if you're just listening to my voice, but I'm looking around for one of my favorite books called The Humane Interface. And it was written by uh, one of the uh, creators of the first Max called The Humane Interface. It's a great book. Uh, it's out of print now. But he said that once we answer a prompt like 15 or 20 times, that we begin just answering the prompt through muscle yep. response. Yeah. And he's he was, he was saying like the prompt where you're like, are you sure you want to delete? He goes, it's useless. All of us have deleted files we didn't really need to delete. He goes, just make it always be a really easy file to recover.
1: <laughs> exactly. All right. So, let's let's switch gears. So, we're trying to, to deal with authentication, authorization issues. Um, we've been grappling with it in different ways for the past couple decades. We know that people now are having to juggle literally hundreds of passwords every year. Passwords are extremely vulnerable. They end up in data dumps everywhere. They fuel even more attacks. One of the primary ways that we tell people, oh, you can you could start to get a handle on this is through using something like a password manager, because we don't want you to continue to create and propagate really bad passwords. We want you to have stronger passwords, longer passwords, ones that are harder to decrypt using mechanized methods of of, uh, trying to crack those things. And uh, password manager is really the only human-friendly way of doing that right now. But there's a potential keys to the kingdom problem. And um, we've seen that keys to the kingdom problem surface a couple times recently. So give me your thoughts on password managers. Where do they fit in? What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? And what's your advice there?
2: Okay, well, so my my quick, short advice is everybody should use a password manager. Awesome. And the reason why is that the average person only has a handful of passwords, or, or maybe I think the official stats are 3 to 17 passwords that they reuse across the 170 unrelated sites and services. Yeah. And in a given year, odds are one or two of those sites will be compromised and hackers will get your password. And the problem comes is after you've been on the internet for five years, 10 years, like a lot of us, if you've been using the same password or a password pattern, like I used to think I was really good because I, would, let's say that my root password was frog. It was, well, let's say it was frog. I'd say, oh, I'm supposed to use a different password for every site. So I do frog TW for Twitter, frog I for Instagram, frog for FB for Facebook. I, I just thought I was brilliant, right? I had, I, yeah, I had a nice little algorithm.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah, I was 170 different passwords. And well, then one day I dumped, I went to one of those, you know, password dump sites. I looked up my email address and there were all of my passwords with what was like, if I'm a hacker, I would have gone to Amazon and tried FrogAid. <laughs> you know, like Roger was not the password genius that he thought he was. Right. So the the number one, the two biggest risks with passwords, with just passwords in general without a password manager where that you're going to use Reshare the same password or a password pattern across multiple unrelated websites. That's that's the biggest risk to you on whether you're going to be hacked or not. Number two, that the password you provide is fairly weak. And let me say today, uh, we have attackers that are guessing 10-character complex passwords. Let me say your complex password, which is probably an uppercase character in the first position. That's a consonant. It's a lowercase character in the second position. That's a vowel. And if you have a symbol or a number, the number is one or two, and it's located at the end. Like that describes like eighty percent of complex passwords. So your complex password and the complexity that we thinks oh here's complex password it really doesn't work. We have so just on online password guessing, we know we have evidence of an attacker without any insider knowledge guessing at a ten character complex password. It was welcome twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a Dutch password, but it was in ten characters. So yeah. it took them a year to break it, but they did. And there was no controls whatsoever on that website. You know, they were able to guess a hundred thousand times a day for over a year. Uh, if they are able to get your password hash, so in today most operating systems today, Windows, Linux, Apple, whatever, they'll store your password as a password hash. So your plaintext password of frog gets converted to this cryptographic hash. That's the same for every password. It's the same. Well, if an attacker can get to your password hash, let me say it's a big if, but it turns out that I can sometimes get it just by sending you an email, you click on the link and I get your password hash. Or if I break into if I break into one, let's say Windows system on Active Directory Network, I can dump you if I'm logged in as a regular user, I can get the password hashes for all the service accounts. Right. And you cannot stop me. But if an attacker gets your password hashed, they are routinely breaking passwords up to eighteen characters long, complex passwords up to eighteen mm. characters long. There was recently even a study by the U.S. government. They did, they uh, did password hash cracking, and they, in ninety minutes they cracked sixteen percent of user passwords on their network. That and let me say, required to be like ten characters long and right. complex, they cracked sixteen percent of them. And ninety minutes. And let me say, today the password hash cracking rigs can take tens of trillions of guesses per second. Most of our passwords are not going to withstand tens of trillions of guesses per second. So, yeah, in order for your password to be truly secure today, it has to be twelve characters perfectly random, like hmm. what a password manager creates and uses. So that's why, that's in order for your password to be truly unguessable uncrackable, it needs to be 12 characters perfectly random and longer. Password managers create and use them and it you don't need to know them. All you're doing is clicking on an icon inside of a password manager or edit copy, edit pasting. That's why you should use a password manager because it creates perfectly random passwords that are unguessable, uncrackable, and unique, uniquely different for every website and service. So a password manager Even though it's a single point of failure, the two major risks they offset, which is you reusing your password or you using a weak password, a password manager gets rid of those risks. And those two risks are the largest risk you face as a password user. And, of course, there's password managers that become a single point of failure, and there have been ones that are hacked. But that risk, right now at least, is still substantially lower, exponentially lower than
1: the other two risk. So um, this is backtracking a little bit, but um, talking about the fact that you can fairly easily break password hashes there. In your mind, what's the vulnerability associated with that? So for folks that aren't all up on crypto, you assume that if a password is hashed that it's cryptographically sound and that there's some kind of seed in there that's hard to hard to replace. So what's the biggest vulnerability that makes those quote-unquote easy to crack? Yeah, you know, so
2: what attackers do if they get your password hash, they they use what's called a a, a password hash cracking program like Hashcat or what's called uh, John the Ripper, which is what I used to use all the time. And they can upload your hashes or the, the captured hashes into that program. They upload a password dictionary. And then they fire it off at trillions or tens of trillions of times per second. And what it does is it takes the password dictionary and it has all the root words and it starts doing all kinds of combinations of the password dictionary, throwing numbers at the end into an uppercase, lowercase, and then it hashes them and then compares the password dictionary hashes against your captured password hashes. And so in doing so... They can, they can convert your password hash to a plain text password. And why that becomes important is that if I have your password hash, I cannot log in remotely to any service. Right. I can't log into your email. I can't log into anything that requests your login name and password with just your hash. If I had just your hash inside of a Windows machine or a Windows Active Directory network, I can do what's called pass the hash attacks and use them to log in. So across the network, if I'm already inside your network, I can use them to go across your network and log into servers where you could log in without your plain text password. But if I get your plain text password, then I can do far more things with it. Yeah. So it gives me versatility as an attacker. And let's say a, a common, another common scenario would be I'm an attacker and maybe I break into your Cisco router or your email gateway and there's hashes for your login there. If I can crack those hashes back to the plain text password, because most people share the same passwords across multiple sites and services, one password allows me to get into many more things. Like let's say in in Microsoft Active Directory... The the, the 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 separate a, a security domain in a Microsoft Active Directory network is known as a forest. There's a domain level, mm-hmm. but then a forest level. And the forest level, if you have two different forests, they don't share any of the same stuff. They're administrated differently. You have to have to log into them differently. But password penetration testers will log into one forest, crack the hashes, get the passwords, and then just log in directly to this other forest because it's really likely. That admins are going to reshare the right. same password against other force. Let me say, today ransomware will, will routinely break into one person's machine, get the crack the administrator password and/or service account passwords, and from that crack everybody's password. Because once they have a service account password that is administrator or domain admin or something like that. I can go from having one person's password on an active directory network to having everyone's password literally in minutes. And it's it's yeah. I think that I hear the speed record is the Russians. The Russians go from one compromised workstation to having every password of everybody on the network in about 8 minutes, but certainly within a day. That's that's right. the reason why these password hashes become so important. But if you have uh, a strong password, 12 characters, perfectly random, or, or or maybe if you create out of your head it has to be twenty characters or longer. If you have a strong password, they're not they may have your password hash and that's a problem, but they're not getting your plain text password that gives them more more versatility to be right. able to move to
1: different security domains where you might reshare it. Okay. So having a really good, strong password using non-repeated, non-guessable types of combinations saves you from those dictionary-based attacks where they're trying to bump up against your hash and do comparisons. So are there any other things that we need to think about when it comes to password managers? Because I want to ask the same question for capturing passwords in the browser. Because I think okay. that there's a difference there that they sound similar on the surface of it is I'm putting all my passwords in one place. But there's a degree of sophistication difference. Right.
2: People say, is it all right if I use my password, my password on my browser's password manager or my operating system password yeah. manager? Like, well, it's better. It's better to use a password manager no matter where it's located than it is for you to reshare weak passwords. So I'm if you if that's your alternative, you're telling me that if you don't use your browser password manager, you're going to use weak passwords everywhere. I'd rather use your browser password manager. But the problem with those is twofold. And number one, my number one problem with browser-based password managers is every hacker and every malware program out there stealing passwords immediately dumps your browser. Like that's what they do. And And let me say they could do it against the password managers, but so far I don't know of malware that does it and and or hackers that quickly do it. And there's a chance if someone if a hacker breaks in and your password manager is not open, there's that at least prevents them from immediately getting to your passwords versus if it's in your browser, it's probably going to be automated and they steal all your passwords out of your browser within the first couple of seconds of compromising your workstation. So, right. Uh, standalone password managers are better just because the companies usually have a focus on one product. They have more feature sets. Like uh, my password manager will let me know immediately when when one of my passwords has been compromised. Uh, like they're like, oh, I got a face Facebook. like Facebook's been hacked. You need to change your your Facebook password. I remember I was looking on Google or Bing trying to find out Facebook's been hacked. Well, it didn't come out till like four or six hours later that Facebook had been hacked. But the password manager people knew it and it oh, built nice. that alert into the, were able to send me an alert or they'll tell you when your passwords are weak or they'll tell you when you're resharing a password or password pattern, um, you know, or you can do secure notes. Like in a password manager, I can yeah. put secure notes. Like I, one of the things I do is I put, if I die, I have a, I have a tab in my password manager going if I die and once for my wife and once for my kids. And I'm actually... Set my kids my secret key. I split key it. I took my master password from <laughs> my password manager and I split it in half and sent it to each of uh, my kids. So they have to get together to uh, steal all my money. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully they like me. But my wife knows that if I die, she can go to a tab on my password manager and it has a list of all of our retirement accounts, uh, nice. our lawyer you know, all the important fiduciary information and who she should call. And the same thing for my kids if me and my wife die. And I like that that's there. Well, that that's yeah. very difficult to put in a browser password manager. But if you want to use an OS-based password manager or you want to use your browser-based password manager, sure, that's better than using the same shared weak passwords everywhere.
1: So there's a, a perception among some that in the browser that the the encryption or the hashing is weaker or non-existent can you know what what security mechanisms are browsers using to protect the passwords that are there
2: well you know it depends on it depends on the browser they're actually using fairly good encryption industry standard accepted encryption with good key sizes but it's not implemented as securely as most standalone password managers and meaning by that like uh, let's say one password and LastPass, probably the number one, number two. They're the yeah. two most popular out there standalone. Well, OnePass has not only the master password, but it has a master key that's this really long digit number. And you're not going to steal that password manager and get to the passwords unless you know both the master password and the the master password key, which they tell you, hey, get it off this system. But then it's encrypted and it's sent securely using public private key encryption to the one password people and and all your information is encrypted in the cloud but by multiple keys not only your master password key but the secret master key which is not even they don't know it's an Mm. offline thing if you lose that if you have not backed that up and stored it somewhere probably off your computer you could be without all your passwords one day although then that's the worst thing if if you if you get locked out of your password manager which does happen to people the worst case scenario is you've got to go around and reset all your passwords from all your websites. That's, right. that's, that's not great, but that's not like you've lost your money. Right. You have reset my password, reset my password. <laughs> but um, so, you know, most of the browsers use good encryption, but it's the additional security mechanisms using that same security that the, the standalone password managers do. So, you know, again, I, I wouldn't say that it's that they're using weak encryption. It's just that the password, not all of them, but some of the password man, standalone password managers are using that
1: same encryption, but in better and additional ways. Two really quick questions. One is, if you hear that your password manager has had a breach, what do you do with that information? Uh, do you yes. not trust that password manager anymore? Um, and then the second question you can just kind of freeform off of that is what one last piece of advice related to passwords or authentication do you want to leave the audience with?
2: So I'm going to start with the second one first, maybe if yeah. that's all right. Yeah. Which is that way, if you tune out, because I talk so, so much every time you ask me a single question. But, uh, you know, I think your password policy should be that you, you use phishing-resistant MFA when and where you can to protect valuable data. And if you don't know what's phishing-resistant or not, follow me on LinkedIn or email me at at noble 4com noble 4com and I'll send you a paper that shows you all the ones that I know that are phishing-resistant. So you should use phishing-resistant MFA to protect valuable data and systems where you can. Where you can't, you should use a password manager to manage your passwords. If you ever create a password out of your head, it needs to be 20 characters or longer. And that's because I have friends that routinely break 18-character passwords that are not even nation-state attackers. But going back to the password managers, everything gets hacked. Most of the password manager hacks are that the password manager software has a a vulnerability in it, a flaw. Like, why I can't use it. You know, and if you go look up LastPass and OnePass, they have like, one's got like nine vulnerabilities been found. The other's got like 12. But I always tell people, every month, your browser and OS has dozens of (laughs) vulnerabilities, and you're still using them. So I don't think the mere fact that your password manager has a vulnerability means that much. And that as long as the password manager, when they find out they have a vulnerability, that they quickly patch it and that that patch is auto-pushed to you, I, I don't think that's a reason to stop using your password manager. I, I do think you know one of the major password manager people, they've actually had compromises on people's passwords and the password vault. And, and part of the problem there is they encrypted the people's passwords, but it was, only, it was encrypted by the master password, which... For the last couple of years, they've been saying it needs to be 12 characters or longer. If your master password was 12 characters or longer, it probably is very protective in that your passwords didn't get compromised. But it used to be that you could do any size or maybe you only had to have eight. So if your pass manager, let's say in the the last pass recent hack, is below uh, 12 characters, I would immediately change your master password to something above 12 characters. I'd say to 20 characters. And I would change every password that you stored in there. But the other problem was LastPass also, in an unencrypted state, it stored people's logins mm. and the websites. So literally the attacker now has a list of every website that you use that password manager to log on to and your login name, which is just, you know, and if they crack some of your passwords, it's beginning a, a chain of events. But not only right. that, but they can spear phishing. Now they know, oh, you belong to a cat, you know, website. Well, I can now do some type of targeted spear phishing. Roger, we found this really valuable cat that we'll give to (laughs) you for $100 or something. But in general, I've used maybe 20 password managers, and there's open source ones, there's commercial ones. By the way, people go, which password manager should I use? What I always tell people is go to Wired Magazine, that's wired.com, and they have two password manager reviews. I agree with what Wired Magazine says to use because they're like, here's a good free one. Here's a good commercial one. Here's a good one if you're worried about this or that. I like what Wired Magazine says, and they choose a handful of different password managers. Uh, But if you use a password manager, try to use one that's been around for a while. Uh, you're going to get what you paid for. The commercial ones are better than the open source ones just because they have more features. And make sure you use a good master password. I'd say, again, 20 characters or longer. A lot of them allow you to protect them with MFA. And let me say, try to use phishing-resistant MFA. <laughs> so that's my advice. You should use a password Sweet. manager. If you want to have extra protection, use MFA to protect it. And let the password manager create strong, different, unique passwords for all your websites and services. If you have to create a password out of your head, it should be 20 characters or longer.
1: I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive discussion into authentication, passwords, multi-factor authentication, and password managers with Roger Grimes. In the end, we see that there is no perfect system. The industry is taking steps to improve resilience and usability, but these changes take years, if not decades, to gain mass adoption. That being said, even small improvements are still improvements. And so I believe a healthy mindset for us to adopt is one of open-minded skepticism. It's unwise to blindly believe that the next MFA or authentication method is the quote-unquote silver bullet. We should know by now that security is a game of building layered defenses and achieving incremental improvement. And what that means is we adopt technologies like MFA, password managers, biometrics, and continuous authentication methods, knowing that there will be flaws in these systems. There will be exploitable vulnerabilities. There will be process issues. There will be integration issues. There will be a whole range of adoption issues that come with these technologies. And there will even be exploitable vulnerabilities. But that doesn't mean that these technologies and these strategies have failed. What it does mean is that we have the tendency to expect too much from them. We tend to expect perfection, but Every security professional should know, embrace, and plan for the fact that there is no perfect system or strategy. It all comes back to layered defense and incremental improvement over time, and that is the game. It's your move. Thanks for listening to 8th Layer Insights, and a big thank you to my guest and colleague Roger Grimes. I've loaded up the show notes with links to some of the articles and other resources that we touched on today, links to Roger's books and more. And also don't forget to check the show notes for information about how to submit listener questions or how to connect with me for anything else that I might be able to help you with. If you've been enjoying Eighth Layer Insights and you want to know how you can help make the show successful, there are two big ways that you can do so. And both are always important. First of all, if you haven't yet, take just a couple seconds to give us five stars and to leave a short review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast platform that allows you to do so. The second big way that you can help is by telling someone else about this show. Word of mouth referrals are really still the lifeblood of helping people find good podcasts. And if you haven't yet, please go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you like to get your podcasts. If you want to connect with me, feel free to do so. You'll find my contact information at the very bottom of the show notes for this episode. This show was written, recorded, sound designed, and edited by me, Harry Carpenter. Artwork for 8th Layer Insights is designed by Chris Machowski at ransomware.net, that's W-E-A-R, and Mia Rune at MiaRune.com. The Eighth Layer Insights theme song was composed and performed by Marcus Moskett. Until next time, I'm Perry Carpenter, signing off.